I want to start this off by saying some of you may know what I do for work, which would be awesome. Could you come to my work and tell my boss? Because there's a, there's a bit of vague, vagueness there, but um, my job involves presenting to boards and, and uh, general managers and CEOs and those things I'm not nervous in because that's, that's my construction. That's you know, what I'm paid to do. But because uh, I really feel that God's put this on my heart. I'm a bit wobbly up here this morning because I don't feel this is mine. I feel like God's trusted me with this. So, yeah, bear with me if I seem a bit, uh, bit wobbly at the start. Does anyone know what this is a painting of? I, I'm not an art historian, so I'm biased because I Googled the image. But I don't know if it's Renaissance art or... It's actually... It's, well, that's George Washington. This is a um, depiction of the American Revolution. On the, on the shores of Gibraltar there in, in the UK. So this, was, um, this is obviously at the, end of, at the end of the War of Independence, but April 19, 1775, so a fair while ago, it was an era of extreme poverty, war, and, and, unjust, uh, and unjust taxes under the British Empire. So the world was in, in a lot of turmoil, and disease was rife across the land. Now, there was a group of people that knew things were the way they weren't meant to be. Life was meant to be better than, than, the, than the lot they'd been dealt. So they started protesting. The protests escalated to boycotts. The boycotts, boycotts escalated to a destruction of a shipment of tea, which led to the start of the War of Independence. So th there was about 40,000 Americans. In North, in North America, there's about 40,000 Americans against just under 50,000 from Great Britain. And over the eight-year war, they suffered... Uh, between the two sides, about 120,000 casualties. And it actually escalated to a world war status. So uh, France and Spain also joined in. So quite a, quite a passionate battle, I would say, for, for eight years. And obviously we know the outcome, that the USA was born. So fast forward a bit. Anyone know which painting this one's of? French Revolution, that's right. This is the storming of the Bastille. So July 14, 1789, so not long after the... the um, uh, the War of Independence, an era of extreme poverty, war and unjust taxes under the French monarchy. So it looks very similar to the, the one in uh, the US. Uh, disease was rife across France and there was protest boycotts which escalated to violence. So the Bastille was actually a high security prison which they put political prisoners in. And at, at, at the time on, on July 14, it actually only had seven prisoners in it. But uh, with all of the uprising that was going on, the government actually transferred nearly, or just over 30,000 muskets and 250 barrels of gunpowder to the Bastille. So it was a strategic outpost. This was in Napoleon's lifetime, and one of his generals led the charge. This then was a, ended up being a 10-year campaign, which obviously ended up in the, um, in the Democratic Republic of France that we all love their croissants and, uh, and nice coffee now. But uh, that, that's... Uh, that was overthrown uh, from that. And then we come forward a little bit further to 1854. Excellent, someone knows. So it's an era of extreme poverty and unjust taxes brought by, by the British Empire this time. So anyone actually been to Blood on the Southern Cross is familiar with the story? So the mining tax was three pounds a month. It doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of a year in today's money based on annual income, it's about 700,000. In, in today's money. So it's a, it's a fairly big tax. And because of that, these miners that had left their families and, and you know, in pursuit of a, of a better life, because this was a tax that was gradually increased, um, disease became, you know, rife. It was extreme poverty in this time. And 
uh, a team of a very small team of miners, uh, about uh, about 120 of them, against uh, that was uh, Peter Laylor and Henry Ross, beg your pardon, against um, 270 of the British, so they're outnumbered two to one. Uh, had an uprising that only lasted about 20 minutes, but uh, because of that, the mining tax was reduced to in today's money about 120,000 a year, a bit more manageable if you're actually finding gold, and obviously became then our, the closest we've ever had to a war of independence. So the common thread between these, um, between these uh, revolutions was there was actually a long period of time of people accepting the way things were, that should be right, should be right, and it was just incrementally made worse. And the injustice built um, until extreme forces are at work against the people, because it wasn't just about money. If you don't have money, you can't afford healthcare, you can't afford good nutrition until a small group become inspired by the revelation that how things are are not how they are. Uh, uh, how things are are not how, how they should be. They knew that there was a, a better reality than the one they were sitting in. And the intensity of their passion led to violence and that they were willing to lay down their life for their cause. And so that leads me to the point of this message, is that your revelation determines your revolution. These people had a really good handle on exactly how things were meant to be, and that then led them to a revolution. Now, going back a, a fair bit further, roughly 30, 30 AD, it's an era of extreme positive and unjust taxes. The Roman Empire is at work right across uh, the civilised world, and people are having to work pretty hard to make a living. Now, this is an artist, I believe it's from a movie, which I haven't seen, but of, um, of uh, Simon and Andrew, the two brothers that were fishermen. And that's probably, like, uh, theologians believe that they were probably a bit more muscular than that and a bit taller, because they, all they ate was protein and put, hauled nets all, in all day. So they would have been pretty big blokes. But they, they lived in a community that was heavily oppressed by the Roman Empire. And people that were leading revolutions were coming and going all the time. And it actually says in Matthew about Jesus coming up to them. And Jesus was a carpenter, so, you know, he wouldn't have been small, but he was an ordinary man, and the Bible's fairly clear that he's a man. And he simply says, come follow me. Those three simple words is what set off a revolution that was to sweep across the world and, and still be alive today. And this, this point's really stuck with me, is that it was such a simple command and then what was it in this revelation that those two had? They didn't quiz him about gay marriage, whether it was trichotomy or dichotomy. Is it, are we predestined or, you know, are, are, is there a hell? Like, there was none of this great theological debate. It was a very simple revelation that this man was leading a revolution that we want to follow. So the Holy Spirit was at work through Peter, although at that point, he hadn't received it in full. So the Holy Spirit is a divine person and part of the Godhead. We know from 1 Corinthians 2.1, sorry, 2.10, that uh, the Holy Spirit thinks and knows. It's written, no eye has seen, nor no ear has heard, and what human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The, the Holy Spirit is actually at work in us, 
revealing those things and, and, and looking out for the things that we need to know. In Ephesians 4.10, it warns us against grieving the Holy Spirit. So we know that the Holy Spirit's an emotional being, like in that it has a, he has emotions. I should stop saying it. In Romans 8.26, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, praying for us with Jesus continually, constantly. And he also gives us gifts according to his will. 1 Corinthians 12 say, says, Now to each, of the, each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to, still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are works of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes to each one just as he determines. So we've learnt that the Holy Spirit is a, is a being at work, helping, helping build this revelation. And, and I would actually argue that we can't have a deep revelation of who Jesus is, like Peter, without the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's just an intellectual exercise and it, it, it will fall away. And interesting, when Jesus was baptised by John, we, we see in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is described as a dove. And to me, I think that's very, very critical in, in what we need to know about the Holy Spirit. In, the, in, in our culture, in doves at the moment, we only see magicians using them. And the reason for that is when they you know, reveal it from the handkerchief, they know that the dove is going to fly away. This, these, by nature, they are skittish. They're not easily settled. And the fact that the Bible is very specific in using the dove as, a, as an illustration of the Holy Spirit says to me that we can, we can uh, miss that opportunity. We can actually scare God off. In, in, there is, is there something that we can do in our behaviour that can get in the way of that revelation? So I'll get to that. <laughs> now, he also, uh, Jesus actually describes this dove as a comforter and counsellor. And it's his promise to us. So even though we've got this, this promise of a, a, we've got this flighty spirit that may not necessarily want to settle on us at, at a particular moment, it's our promise. It says in the Bible, we can bank on it. So how do we know when the Holy Spirit's come and we've received a revelation uh, that we can actually trust it? Now in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage is relating to obviously the the strength of the word of God. And if our revelation doesn't uh, marry up to what the Bible teaches us, then we probably haven't got a very, uh, very solid revelation. And also, one thing that we we experience a lot in church is uh, questioning it. And there's actually nothing wrong with questioning it. Uh, Thomas's story, uh, we're all quite familiar with. Uh, but I'll, I'll read you the passage anyway. Is John 20, 27. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, Lord and my God. Now it's interesting that that Jesus was teaching Thomas that it's actually okay, okay to have doubt. It's actually okay to say, I'm not sure if this revelation that I see before me is real. Quite often, I was actually talking to Joel before the service about a thing that uh, I've, I've come across recently called the long middle. Whenever you start something new, it's got the exciting beginning and then it's got the fun, sometimes like life, maybe the fun bit dying doesn't really marry up. But you have this bit in the middle, which is, can be mundane and quite long. Now, during this journey, as we go with the Holy Spirit, there's nothing wrong with saying to God, let me see if this is real. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if, uh, if what you're telling me, Lord, if this is actually you, let me see your hands. Now, uh, we're not necessarily to test the Holy Spirit, but it is part of that long middle journey to have times when you doubt. Now, this, this is actually intentionally a short message um, because like what John was saying, I feel that this is actually part of a journey of getting before God and, and, and unpacking those doubts, those areas in our life where we're not sure and um, you know, may, maybe we need it. Well, I need a deeper revelation because obviously I'm not uh, at the moment uh, on the forefront of a revolution. I think Mel's got a pretty good revelation. I think, uh, you know, well done there with, uh, with the schools. I think that's fantastic. Um, but I'll, I'll finish with, a, with another story, actually. So, if, Ross, you want to come up? And this one is actually a bit more recently, uh, February 11th, 1996. And in my life, it was an era of extreme positive war and unjust taxes under the Australian government. Um, I was actually, at that stage, I, I was only 21, fresh out of uni. Um, and uh, I'd become a Christian, actually led to, led to God through a, uh, through a Satanist. And it's a story for another day. But... Um, Bit of a teaser there. Everyone's probably asking now. But I was in the New Age pre- previous to becoming a, um, a Christian. And um, I had a deep, deep understanding that um, obviously that I needed God and that I needed a be- better revelation than the one that I had. And around that time, actually, there was a song um, by Foo Fighters, um, Learn to Fly. I mean, everyone's heard it on the radio, but there's a line in that song that stuck in my head that hooked me up a new revolution because this one is a lie. And that really stuck in my head as, as I was journeying with, with my friend Jamie um, at that point and, and led me to question a lot of things. And one thing that, um, that Jamie pointed out, because he knew the church really, really well, as, as most people who are practising Satanists do, um, and he said that the Holy Spirit won't come and fill a dirty cup. Now, obviously, we're, we're aware of our sin and that there's actually nothing we can do um, to fix that. There's nothing, there's nothing we can do in our own strength. And the revelation that I had that the only way my cup would become clean was through Jesus. The only way that I could um, have that revelation of who God is and to start my own revolution would be to come before God and, and say, clean me. Now, there's actually another song at that time by a a Christian thrash metal band um, called Isaiah 6. 
And it was on this day, on, on February 11, 1996, that Jamie showed me this, this song. It's called Isaiah 6. But I'll read you the passage of Scripture rather than sing you the song. Uh, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple filled with smoke. When we're, when we're in God's presence, words alone don't can't describe, when I, when I hear this song and I read this passage, your mind paints a picture of how amazing this place is. But it's interesting, Isaiah's response, as it was my response in February 96. Woe to me! Woe to me! I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King. It's that realisation that there's nothing we can do in our own strength to be reconciled to God. There's nothing we can do. No religious activity. No mantra. But when we come before God and say, I'm nothing before you, Lord. I'm nothing without you but only by your blood. I see you, Lord, and I will follow you. It's a simple revelation, but only one that comes from the Holy Spirit. It says in Isaiah again, it continues, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs of the altar. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. This simple revelation. Obviously, the coal was Isaiah's equivalent of the blood of Jesus. It was the imagery, the preciousness of the blood of Jesus. And so today, it's a simple message. Because as John was saying earlier, and as Tanya was saying in communion, let just be just a simple remembrance today of what God's done for us. And that we come before him today as we go into a time of worship in spirit and in truth. That we are unclean men and women in a world full of unclean men and women. There, there is an injustice upon the earth. That there is extreme positive, uh, poverty and unjust taxes. That this is an era where the devil is roaming like a lion to come steal, kill and destroy. Yet we have such a hope in Jesus that there is nothing we can do there is nothing we can do without the blood of, 
of the Lamb. And so today, as as the, the band starts, I just want there to be a time of reflection. And if you want to tap into that place, if if you're aware that God's you're needing the uh, the touch of the Holy Spirit, you're needing that deeper revelation. We want to pray with you. We want to see that revelation of what God has for you.